Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged, everybody. It's been wonderful going through this series of problem passages of the Bible. I'm here with Sam Storms, pastor of Bridgeway Church here in the city, J.J. Side, pastor of Bridgeway Church, and I'm Tim Kimberly, pastor of Frontline Church. And we're just coming together as, as three guys that love the Bible, love our Jesus, and realize that there are places in the Bible. And Sam, I'm going to throw this one at you, place in the Bible where this may surprise some people, People will accuse God of being a moral monster. Uh, now, we know that there are some new atheists that are actually use this phrase, that when they read the Bible, they see a child abuser. When they read the Bible, they see someone who is trigger happy. When they read the Bible, they see somebody that they would not even want their kids to become that they believe that they are reading in Scripture a moral monster on full display. That's true, and let's be honest right from the start. Um, we are not about to um, avoid these kind of texts. We're not here That's to right. deny, oh, oh, it's not really in your Bible, you're just mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not, we're ready to acknowledge and uh, address the fact that, the, that these are problems, they're challenges to us. Uh, uh, we're thinking particularly today about um, several texts in the book of Joshua. They also appear in other passages, but particularly in, in Joshua 6, chapter 8, also chapter 10, I believe, where God commanded Joshua and the Israelites to wipe out a people group. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, 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 the language is quite exhaustive. Now, we'll talk in just a moment about whether or not it's to be taken literally, because one yeah. view is that it isn't. But um, in fact, God says, I'm, I'm giving this land to you, and in order for you to obtain it in fulfillment of the promises, you have to displace these people. And uh, he says, you will kill everything that breathes. You leave mm -hmm. nothing alive. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's, let's be honest and say, this is something of a challenge to us, and we need to think very carefully through it. And we really need to to, we're, we're treading here on very holy ground, but we're talking about the very character of God. Yeah. And we need to watch our language. We need to watch our attitudes. We need to be, I think we need to be sensitive to people who are highly offended by these particular incidents. And we don't want to be cavalier in our response or say, oh, don't worry, get over it. Mm -hmm. um, these are real challenges uh, to the portrayal of God as we find it in the Bible. So we need to think through these uh, very deliberately and see what the Word of God has to say about them. Yeah, okay, so take us to where does this all get started in the book of Joshua, would you say? Well, I think the first incident uh, is in uh, Joshua chapter 6 and the fall of Jericho, but then it comes uh, also uh, later with the fall of Ai and mm -hmm. uh, the destruction of the Amalekites. Mm -hmm. um, and there are there are just numerous instances in which uh, there is a, a command 
and, and by the way, this is interesting. But let me just stop right here and make this point. Some people have tried to resolve this problem by saying uh, this was just Joshua's idea. Mm-hmm. He thought it up. He was a bloodthirsty um, a militant and that it was all his uh, strategy. And the problem with that is, is that we have repeatedly in the book of Joshua and elsewhere statements would say, as God commanded Joshua and Israel. Um, others have said, well, maybe this was just Israel's idea collectively, that they were a barbaric, uh, primitive tribe, and they are the ones who instigated this mass killing. And then they later uh, wrote their documents in such a way that uh, the blame, so to speak, or, or a responsibility was laid at the feet of God. Uh, that simply won't work because we have too many times in the Old Testament where it is directly attributed to God yeah. and his command. Yeah, well, and I was thinking about Saul when Saul defeats a king and the king is still, Saul doesn't kill the king like he was supposed to. And Samuel, the prophet, actually comes and kills the kills the other guy instead. And and Samuel is mad at, at through God, uh, Samuel is mad at Saul because Saul did not follow to a T the people that he was supposed to kill. Yeah, let me just give one, one passage uh, that, that kind of summarizes. This is uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. It says, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Uh, yeah, in verse chapter 6, verse 21, uh, then they devoted all in the city destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Um, and so we're seeing so many times where, where there's destruction, and then the, the verse you pointed out, this is exactly what God wants. And if you read Joshua carefully, uh, uh, many people, I mean, I think it's you make a hard biblical theological case to say God wasn't in on this. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, it seems to me like a non-option is to say that God wasn't in on this. Um, other, if Joshua like smudged the Bible and wrote that, oh, God told me to do this, but really he didn't. Uh, but if we trust that the words of the Bible are really true, which I do, then I would say God is in on this. God does desire for these people to be killed, it seems. And so uh, so as we navigate this, we're navigating. And what I think is just good Bible study and good Bible reading is not to read something and first think to yourself, oh my gosh, God, oh my gosh, God, what, what did you do? Oh God, uh, I wouldn't have done that if I was God. Oh God. But I think instead you have to read it and, and say, okay, how do I, how should I view my God in light of these verses? Mm-hmm. And how do I view my good God? How do I view these things? And maybe I need to allow me to be changed to get a bigger picture of who God is potentially. JJ, you've been sitting silent. What we're hoping and praying here is that you've been Profound mulling thoughts. over yeah. a, an answer that will put this issue forever to rest, and and we'll all be able to get, breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, enough of that. <laughs> yeah, it's good for our listeners to be aware of a, a recent book that was very influential, written by a, a great man, Paul Copan, Is God a Moral Monster? Mm-hmm. And he wrestles with all these texts. He does it very thoroughly, and the book, I think, has a lot to offer. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, he's continuing to hold the view that some of this language is picturesque, that it's that it's metaphorical. That when mm-hmm. it says, you know, wipe out every living thing, it basically means kill the opposing soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, that it's poetic language. There's a couple passages in the Pentateuch that, that seem to make that difficult, where that language is used, and then it gets spelled out in detail, who got killed and who didn't, and sometimes God's mad at them for not being thorough enough. So I'm not sure, when I first read Paul's view, I was persuaded by it. I'm not sure that I'm as persuaded by it now. 
But a passage that I've been thinking so, about. So that means that you're not, sh- so you think that potentially uh, Joshua did kill all the people. I don't think that we can simply uh, end the podcast now by saying good news, it's all picturesque language. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and we just didn't realize that. Whew, that was a close one. You know, I think it's probably <laughs> a little more nuanced than that. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about passages like Deuteronomy 12, where he uh, is warning the Israelites not to behave like the people that they're displacing. Mm-hmm. And he says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, that's what we're talking about. And he says, take care that you don't be ensnared to follow them. And, and it just boggles my mind to give us some context for the ancient Near Eastern world that is so alien to us that, that Moses would actually have to say this to them. Don't worship the Lord your God in the way that they did, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, did he really, he had to say that to them? You know, so it, that's just a little bit of a reminder to us that we're talking about a very different world. Exactly, yeah. And when, and when it's referenced that uh, God's not ready for them to claim the land because he says the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its completion, he's giving them hundreds of years in which to repent. Yeah. And, but when God comes in and, and exercises judgment, he's doing it against people who are taking their own children and burning them alive as part of their religious rituals. Yeah, and that was, I think, Molech is that, who we're talking about, I believe, is the worship of Molech, would be this giant bronze statue that would have its hands out, uh, reached out in a cradle-type position, and they would heat the statue so hot that it became, uh, not molten, but it became so hot that then they would place children on, on those hands. And, and that is, that's grotesque, that's terrible. Uh, there's a potential that, that Solomon even did that because it says in there that he started following uh, Molech and uh, there's a potential that he even had possibly one of his children do that. But uh, regardless of those things, yes, what we're, I think what we're hinting on is that God probably saw a lot more evil than we think when we think, oh, those sweet Canaanites, they were probably so dear. And, you know, I mean, I think instead think of maybe the the righteous uh, passion that you feel when you hear about someone being beheaded by ISIS. You yeah. know, what happens I, to the fabric of society when people have even lost their instinct to preserve and care for their own children? Such a deep-seated yeah. instinct. Yeah. It's yeah. a good point you raise, too. We need, people often frame this question as, well, what about God's slaughter of the innocents? Yeah. There were no innocent people. Um, the Canaanites were the most wicked people on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. It's, if people want to know how wicked they were and what they did, go read Leviticus 18. Because there we find all of these uh, prohibitions that God gives to Israel. And the reason is because this is what your enemies did. This is what the Canaanites have become. I don't want you to be like them. Um, I want to come back, J.J., to to Paul Copan's interpretation. Because I I do think it's at least worthy of us making clear for our listeners. Some people will hear that and they'll think immediately, oh, well, it's because those guys don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. They reject inerrancy. They don't believe in its authority. So they're kind of soft peddling and kind of Mm -hmm. just uh, explaining it away. And that's not true. Paul Copan and others firmly believe in the inspiration, the authority of the Bible. So basically what they're arguing is, is they say we have evidence from the surrounding cultures of that day that this kind of language that we've just been reading here is what they would call stock proverbial hyperbole. That's kind of fancy, but it just means it's just terminology that was designed to emphasize a thorough trouncing has just occurred. Uh, like, for example, if uh, it didn't happen uh, uh, this way, but if, you know, I would love to be able to say, well, the thunder slaughtered the Lakers the other night. Well, mm-hmm. what do we mean by that? We could say, man, they trounced those guys. Well, maybe they won by 10 points. 
But we use language that sounds very heightened and intense in order simply to emphasize the thorough or exhaustive way in which a, an event has come to pass. And so that's what they're arguing, that they, have, they believe they have grounds for this um, uh, from studying how this kind of language was typically used in the ancient mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So again, if, if you don't buy that interpretation, and I'm not sure that I do, it's not because those who advocate it are trying to weasel out of a problem um, or, or, or somehow are diminishing the, the, the authority of Scripture. They're not doing that at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. Paul is putting his finger on something that's a legitimate aspect of ancient Near Eastern culture, that, that history was not written in the way we think of it in the 20th or the 21st mm-hmm. centuries. It, was, it wasn't uh, meant to be news reporting, right? So a lot of times when a king's victory was accounted in a historical document surviving the ancient Near Eastern period, you would get phrases like that, you know, and the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him as well. He was mm-hmm. so victorious, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was this, these, this, it was almost like a press release meant to, to emphasize or burnish the image of whoever so, was being written for. So I'd like to yeah. throw out just for you, for you guys to uh, uh, refute, and I trust that you can, but the argument uh, that some say, well, it's easy. The God of the Old Testament simply isn't the same as the God of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And this was a bloodthirsty tribal deity. And he's certainly not the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we don't need to worry about that. How would, uh, how would, how would you respond to that? Mm. Does that put you on the spot? Well, it does put me on the spot, in, but not probably in the sense of <laughs> I, I feel like I've been duped. Uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, I think then we're, we're getting into uh, Gnosticism in some ways. We're, get, we're getting into, uh, you know, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? Uh, this has been one of the earliest heresies that the church had to deal with was, uh, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? And is Jesus uh, Trinity? Is Jesus part of that? Is mm-hmm. Jesus divinity? Uh, and so uh, I, I think throughout Scripture we see um, we could look through the eyes of Jesus. You know, did Jesus consider the God of the Old Testament to be his father? Did yeah. he consider him to be God? Well, you know, yeah, so. he, he referred to God as the father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. So so if Jesus was around before Abraham, then either Jesus was watching this really mean God do mm-hmm. stuff and he stood by silently, or he's a part of the Trinity and he's saying, hey, I've been here from the beginning. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament prolifically. I think if Jesus was coming to, to do away with the Old Testament, he would not be quoting it so much. Uh, and he, he quotes it uh, all the time, even the temptation when, when Satan is tempting him, he's only quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And so I, I think we see that Jesus is viewing that the Father is his Father. And not only that, but if what happened during the time of Joshua and at other, on other occasions was so horrifically evil mm-hmm. and immoral, mm-hmm. and the God who commanded it was a monster, yeah. why is there not a single syllable in the New Testament of rebuke or correction? Yeah. Why is it that neither Jesus nor any of the apostles ever allude to this and say, oops, um, we've got a problem. Yeah. Uh, they obviously did not struggle with it, maybe in the way that we are. So yeah. that kind of brings us around to the, to the question I think we now need to ask and answer is, how do we account for this? Yeah. Why did it happen? And, and how do we reconcile this with the, the concept of an infinitely good and compassionate God? Okay, so I will offer what, this is probably my simplest explanation. I think sometimes scripture is so deep that there are many times, uh, many lenses that you can see it through. And I, I was reading something on Charles Spurgeon just this morning where he was talking about how how amazed he is with scripture that many things could be true of it. And that's some of the depth of scripture. One of the clear things I would just say is God is omnipotent. 
So God knows the future. I don't. I don't know the future, and I don't know all things, okay? So, so he, he has foreknowledge, and he knows what's going on. So, for instance, I only know when, when a friend is sinned against. God knows every rape that is happening right now. God knows every sin that is happening right now. And we know from the Canaanites that he waited hundreds of years patiently waiting for them to repent. So here's my, my clear example. If God, knowing the future, saw baby Hitler running around, okay, this is a little extreme, but if God saw a baby Hitler running around in the 19-teens, the early 1900s, uh, and God said, hey, I want you to go up and, and kill that kid. Now, that's, that's harsh, right? <laughs> because that's a sweet li- little innocent kid. Um, but I, at me, at the most simplest, now, what I said before is there are avenues of plenty of other interpretations where if God came back and said, no, that's not how I played it out. But just in the fact of me knowing that he is good and that he is all-knowing, um, if I say, said, wow, you just had this army kill this kid, and it's like, yeah, his name is Adolf Hitler, I'd be like, wow, God, you are loving and just in saving millions of people from such death and hardship by taking out somebody. And I think when he looks at the Canaanites collectively, so I know this no, is, no, I'm saying this is no, a simple interpretation I'm just, I'm just sitting here thinking, so, you just raised another great question, oh, that I, is, why didn't God kill maybe Hitler knowing yes. that what was about to come to pass? So now we've got exactly. another moral problem, a <laughs> tough question we're going to okay. have to address. Well, I received that. But at the same time, what I do want to say, though, is that through one lens that I can see it is that my God knows best. My God is all-knowing. He knows every little sin that all those Canaanites did. He knew the way it would play out. He knew the way it would play out generationally. And he determined that it is best for planet Earth for none of these people to exist anymore. And if it is true that Joshua truly killed all the people, now we can say scripture can still be true and he didn't. He just wiped them out like we would saying like, hey, I just played basketball and I killed them. Um, But if he truly killed every person, I would say that was what was best for humanity, which was best for God's people, and which was the best option of earth to play out because God's ways are best and he will lead the best outcomes to happen. Actually, you're, you, you've touched on something there, Tim, because God did give instructions to the Israelites about why that uh, um, they were to do this. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, don't intermarry with them, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Exactly. So his point is... I, see, I, I'm, I, not, I'm not making this up. Yeah, I'm actually getting this yeah. from the Bible. I mean, I, I've, heard, I've heard the analogy. This may, this may offend people more than the original problem is that sometimes in order to save the whole body, you got to cut off a gangrene leg. Mm-hmm. And the idea was there was such an infectious wickedness among these peoples that God said, you're to have nothing to do with them and you are to displace them because otherwise they will mislead you and, and, and you and entice you into idolatry and the same immorality in which they have become, yeah. uh, in which they are living. Well, and here's an excellent point for people. Again, I think we read this through the lens of the 21st century. This is not ethnic cleansing legitimized by someone's cooked up religious beliefs. You exactly. know, they believe in the flying spaghetti monster and the flying spaghetti monster said it's okay to cleanse, ethnically cleanse people you don't want around. No. This is why religion is bad. 
Um, that's not what you get here in the Bible because what Sam just read, the very next phrase is, uh, be careful not to do those th- same things. Why? Well, because then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So this is not religion co-opted to accomplish what somebody wants to do anyway and is just looking for some flimsy legitimacy for well, it. Which, by the way, let's just point out that the judgments that God brought against the Canaanites were also brought against Israel later in her history because of her own idolatry and immorality. This was not ethnic cleansing. Israel was not exempt from the punishments that God used them as a tool to mete out. He says at the end of Deuteronomy 8, I solemnly warn you, if you do what they did, you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. (laughs) Well, and what we see other places too in Scripture is that God is so patient. You know, even Jonah being sent to the Assyrians and telling Nineveh, you repent. And he didn't destroy Nineveh. He, he didn't destroy all of them, you know. And so I think for us to approach it and say, yes, we, this doesn't mean, this isn't a prescription. And I think that is what you're getting at. Killing of the Canaanites is not prescriptive, meaning that this should happen all the time. Uh, we should take up arms and do that too. It's descriptive of an incredibly unique thing that God has done, and he doesn't do it very often. He's usually slow. He is slow to anger, um, but we even see he takes out Ananias and Sapphira as well right. in the early church. And so God is a God that if taken to a point, he will take people out, um, but he is slow to anger, and he is, is abounding in love, and he's very patient, and he's patient with us right now. Yeah. Let's remember a couple other things that I think might help. Number one, these people, I'm talking about the Canaanites or the Amalekites or whoever it is, these people were alive only because of the mercy of God. These people deserved to die because of their uh, identity in Adam. They were fallen, morally depraved, God-hating folk. They lived. Each breath that they drew was a gift of divine mercy. And if God, the creator, who is sovereign over life and death, chooses to withdraw that life, it is not an injustice to mm. them. It is mercy that they're alive in the first place. We're sitting around this table, breathing uh, a common air, uh, uh, blood pulsi- pulsing through our veins, only because God is merciful and long-suffering. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. W- this idea that somehow he owes us life mm. is, is a, a complete distortion of biblical truth. Let's also remember, I mean, there's a couple other things. I'm just going to throw these out real quickly as we come to a close. Number one, if people struggle with what happened with um, uh, the Amalekites and the Canaanites, they're really going to ha- balk at the idea of a universal flood where God wiped out everybody on the earth except for eight people. Uh, and of obviously the animals who were on the ark. Let's also remember that what happened through Joshua and the Israelites is not different in kind from what God has done providentially throughout the whole course of history. I mean, the reason why we're bothered by this is because it seems so intensely concentrated, but the fact of the matter is people have died and been killed in a variety of different means throughout the course of history, under the nose, if I can say it reverently, of a God who was sovereign and could have intervened at any moment to prevent that. Mm-hmm. Let's also remember, if people have a problem with um, Joshua 6 or Joshua 8 or chapter 10, go read Revelation 19. Mm-hmm. Revelation 19 is a very vivid, almost too graphic description of what Jesus is going to do to all his enemies when he returns at the end of history. He's going to slaughter them in the, much the same way as Joshua did the Canaanites in that particular case. So I think when we keep some of these things in mind, and then also, and I, I don't know if anybody else is going to raise this point, 
people need to understand the church is not a theocratic nation. Uh, we are a multinational spiritual organism. We do not have uh, physical boundaries. We are, the church does not operate in relationship to the world the way Israel did in the promised land that God had given to her. So we need to be careful because I think that's one of the things that really bugs people is not so much that God took the lives of these people, but that he told other human beings to take the lives of those people. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and Sam, you're hitting on a good point. If you have a problem with the Old Testament, unfortunately, it only gets worse. You know, Revelation 14, 20, the winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles. Mm. So you get an incredibly graphic picture of what's going to happen when God judges his enemies. And what's interesting is you hear the viewpoint of those in heaven, and they say, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And that's probably what's going to make this stick in your craw is you have to ask yourself presuppositionally, is God qualified to judge people? That's the deal. Is he just a really powerful human who's angry and vindictive, or is he actually just and wise and all-powerful and all-good and therefore qualified to decide who lives and who dies and when and how? And I think how it applies to us is that this would be really bad news if Jesus never came. And if, if the reality of Jesus living right now as the Prince of Peace, as, as the King of Kings, is that we can know that, yes, things are incredibly broken, tragic things have happened, but the reality of Jesus in the gospel is the restorer and the one that can fix things. And that is really good news. And just one final thing to come full circle. We want our listeners to know we're not taking this problem lightly. We're not treating it as if it doesn't really weigh heavily on our hearts. This mm-hmm. is a this is a, a significant challenge to us who believe in the Bible and the goodness of God. But we do believe that God is good. We do not believe He has acted in unjustly or yeah. uh, in, in an immoral fashion. Uh, shall not the God of heaven and earth do what is right? And the answer is yes. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.